Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, Wall Street braces for a key jobs report. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'll have that story. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're asking what's next for the UK's car industry. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at what to expect and what not to expect when China and the European Union get together for a summit. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where the CEOs of the U.S.'s biggest banks are getting set to testify in the Senate. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby. We begin today's program with a focus on the economy. While many expect the Fed to put further rate increases on hold for now, each key economic report takes on more importance. After signs that U.S. consumer spending and the labor market may be cooling, along with inflation, this coming Friday we get the November jobs report. And helping us break down what it all means and what we should expect to see is Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist with Bloomberg Economics, and Michael McKee, Bloomberg's international economics and policy correspondent. Now, let's start with some of the data that we've taken, that we've seen over the last week or so. Americans slowing their spending in October, personal spending, along with personal incomes, both rising two-tenths of a percent in October. Mike, that's in line with forecasts, but uh, not a very encouraging number, is it? Uh, it, It's not bad, given the month and the fact that uh, uh, September was a very strong month for spending, and it was also back-to-school month. We haven't seen in the October numbers yet the holiday spending that is to come. So you really have to sort of average it out over a couple of months, and we'll see how October turns out. I thought one of the most interesting things, though, was on the income side, because – Incomes were uh, were definitely restrained, and the biggest drop was in wages. After many months of a half percent uh, or four tenths percent gain in uh, wages each month, we only saw a tenth of a percent gain. Now. One month does not make a trend. We saw some months last year where we had negative uh, 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 percentages for for wage gains, and uh, it rebounded. But if this is a sign that labor markets are loosening, and if this continues, it's kind of what the Fed wants to see, uh, wage gains coming down to a more – sustainable level and therefore uh, fits the narrative that uh, they're hoping comes true of the soft landing. Anna, what do you think about that? Yeah, what struck me about what Mike just said is the narrative. What is the narrative right out, out there right now? So this past week, we saw a lot of uh, Fed speaker 
uh, came out and I detected a visibly dovish pivot in all of them, particularly uh, most notable to me is Chris Waller and uh, Loretta Mester, uh, both of whom are, are among the most hawkish uh, Fed officials. And it, it sounded to me that they have become more confident that the labor market is loosening, wage growth is slowing, and that uh, inflation is definitely on track to have a couple more uh, good uh, months of uh, low monthly print. And I think what uh, the PCE report last week showed us, as, as Mike was saying, is like the wage growth is slowing. Even though it's only one month of report, it actually uh, corroborates what the beige book uh, re re narrative is also uh, telling us. So our, our read of the beige book that was released last week is that it was pretty downbeat. And across most of the districts, uh, contacts were talking about how there are more job applicants for other jobs, while the turnover within the same firm is lower, so less people are quitting. So what this means is that the people who are looking for jobs would take a longer time being in the unemployed state. And usually, historically, this tends to drive unemployment rate up persistently. Um, it's not just a one-month thing. Usually, it, it's, it will become a trend thing when you see such a phenomenon. Yeah, those continuing claims up to nearly 2 million last week, Mike. Uh, continuing claims do show that the labor market seems to be getting a little looser. People who get jobless claim, uh, jobless benefits are taking longer to find jobs, which is what you would expect in this situation. I thought uh, perhaps one of the most interesting things, not just the uh, the sort of uh, shading of their views by Chris Waller and Loretta Mester, uh, was in the Beige Book when we saw for the first time since the recovery began, companies saying they are beginning to accept the idea that they might lay people off and that they're not filling jobs because of attrition. Uh, it's not a huge trend yet, but it does. it's a break with what the narrative, to use the term again, has been that, uh, that we have a, this very strong labor market. It does seem to be finally loosening up. And I think that's the point that Chris Waller was making, that what we have now is an economy that is feeling the lagged impacts of the rate increases. So we may have had peak employment because of that? Well, it depends on how you define peak employment. Uh, the The economy continues to add jobs, uh, but uh, the question is, do we see unemployment go up or the number of jobs created go down significantly, which is what the Fed is expecting, but not so far, analysts uh, and economists surveyed by Bloomberg. Well, so let's, Anna, then let's talk about what's coming up this Friday, the November jobs report. What are you expecting to see? So we are definitely focusing more on what's happening to the unemployment rate as opposed to putting too much weight on the um, headline non-farm payroll. So that said, we are expecting the unemployment rate to climb to 4%. Um, that That's uh, versus the 3.9% from the previous month. And uh, for non-farm payroll uh, to add about 150000 jobs. And let me qualify those numbers for a little bit. So, so in terms of the non-farm payroll headline, we are uh, the 150K that we are expecting. Well, that includes um, the 30K that's added from the resolution of a UAW strike. So uh, so if you smooth it over uh, a, a couple of months, in fact, that, that underlying pace of drop, job growth is actually lower than 150K. 
Um, and then in terms of the unemployment rate, a 4.0 unemployment rate would trigger uh, the SOMS rule, as well as a whole bunch of other recession rules. So Bill Dudley and I looked at uh, about 28 uh, rules of thumbs on that tends to have a very good record of um, calling for real time uh, in real time calling in real time a recession and we look at for example the uh, u1 unemployment rate that unemployment rate captures how many how many of the unemployed have been have been so for 15 weeks or longer and whenever that UI, U1 unemployment rate uh, increases persistently, it is usually a harbinger of a recession already in place. And also there's another unemployment rate called U2 unemployment rate, and it captures the layoffs and the temporary workers who are unable to find jobs anymore. And that part actually has not triggered any rules yet. And so we would be keeping an eye on all those U1, U2, U3 unemployment rate because it tells you various parts uh, of the labor market. And what that tells me so far is that, number one, layoffs has not really happened yet. Mass layoffs have has not happened yet. That's the U2 uh, unemployment rate. However, people who are unemployed indeed has been taker, taking longer and longer to find a job. That's U1 unemployment rate. And overall, that should drive U3 unemployment rate up, which is the uh, typical uh, uh, metric for measuring whether a recession has happened. And it uh, makes the jobs report much more interesting. M- many more uh, indicators to dive into there. Uh, I think um, one of the things that we do want to see, uh, besides unemployment, which she gave a very good uh, description of, is uh, whether or not job creation does slow. Uh, if if we got uh, 120,000, which is approximately what uh, Anna's talking about in terms of uh, job creation X strikers being added back, that would be much closer to what the Fed thinks is uh, the minimum needed to absorb new entrants to the labor force to basically keep us kind of neutral. And they wouldn't think that's bad at all. I'm not sure how the markets would react to that. Uh, right now, the Bloomberg consensus is 175,000, which one assumes includes that 30,000. So it's a little bit stronger than the Bloomberg economics number. But I would also caution that over the coming week, we'll get a lot more uh, of the input data that people look at when they make their forecast. So that could be revised by the time we get to uh, Friday morning. What kind of jobs are we absorbing here? Well, mostly what we have been seeing is healthcare jobs and still some leisure and hospitality jobs. Leisure hospitality is the category that has not regained all of its employment yet from the pandemic. So we probably will see more in that category. It will be interesting to see what we see in terms of retail because, of course, this is the time of year when uh, retailers add temporary employees and there's anecdotal reporting that they've added fewer than in previous years. But does that mean we're adding more people in warehousing and transportation, which is where sort of the Amazon and Walmart workers uh, end up in those situations over the holidays? So that's going to be something to look at in the jobs report as well. Well, we'll find out this Friday. And our thanks to Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist with Bloomberg Economics, and Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to Europe and look at some key data coming out of the auto industry there. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, Congress continues its funding battles. But first... In the UK, we get fresh data on the number of new car registrations in the coming days. The sector has shown some signs of recovery recently, but manufacturers still battling against a challenging post-Brexit economic environment, including painful tariffs on electric vehicles. For more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor, Caroline Hepker. Tom, only a few days ago, Nissan announced more than £2 billion of investment into the British car industry. The Japanese car maker will set up another battery factory and produce more electric vehicles at its plant in Sunderland. The government is supporting this investment, which is the latest attempt to inject life into an industry that continues to grapple with the lasting effects of the 2016 Brexit vote. So, can the UK really compete as the industry shifts towards electric vehicles. We're thinking about this, of course, in the context of new car registrations data that is due in the next few days. Bloomberg's global automotive editor, Craig Trudell, has been speaking to me about it. I began by asking him just to give us a reading on the current state of the UK car market sales overall. On the surface, uh, the numbers have looked pretty good lately. Uh, we've had 15 consecutive months of growth. That's obviously, uh, you know, that, that sounds great. Uh, but so has uh, the, the European market. Uh, and so it's really sort of a matter of, of you know, kind of keeping up with the Joneses in that in that respect. Uh, it's also the case that, as, as you alluded to, you know, we're still a long ways from where we were pre-pandemic. So uh, back in 2019, there were 2.3 million new cars registered in the UK. Last year, there was 1.6 million. So about 700,000 and units uh, short of, of where we were before the pandemic. And so we're still a long ways from, from where we were before, mm. uh, you know, before the, the in- industry dealt with uh, this massive disruption. So in terms then of how important the UK car market actually is to these car makers, just put that into context for us. Yeah, for all the challenges the UK has been having, it is still Europe's number two market after Germany. It's also one of the more important markets in the world for premium and higher end vehicles. So you still have uh, uh, quite a bit of of wealth on the part of of consumers in the UK. Uh, A lot of the luxury brands do quite well here. So it is uh, a very important market, even if it has, you know, faded and and relevance to some degree, I I would say, especially on the manufacturing side. Okay. So then on that side of things, how important was the announcement from Nissan, for example, that two billion pounds worth of investment? Well, Sunderland is a massive factory. Uh, it's Nissan's largest uh, assembly plant in the world. And it's really crucial that the UK was able to sort of solidify its future, especially what we've seen over the last half, half decade or so. So car production here slumped last year to the lowest since 1956. 
Uh, you could chalk that up to a, a few factors. Honda closed a plant here in, in 2021. You had Stellantis, uh, you know, shift a car factory to vans, which you know don't count toward cars, of course, but it's also you know a lower volume uh, plant as a result of that shift. Mm. You've seen JLR sort of shift, uh, you know, up market to, to higher value, lower volume products, and so you know the the UK now is down to four major ma- manufacturers at this point. You have Nissan and JLR that kind of compete for top dog status uh, and go back and forth. You have BMW and, and Mini uh, and you have uh, Toyota and, and those four are sort of what we have left. Wow. Um, for an industry that has been so crucial for successive governments, right, that was right. sort of um, kicked off really going back as far as Thatcher. Um, the issue then with um, with that is Uh, how much has the government currently had to help in order to keep those names here and in production? You, as you say, I remember the reporting around Sunderland, the real worry was around a lot of potential job losses. Yeah, you know, we, we had a, a good story just this week as, as the UK announced, you know, this manufacturing plan, and I think it was two, two billion pounds uh, that they were committing to, to auto manufacturing specifically. I think there's been a really interesting sort of reluctance to sort of be drawn into, uh, you know, the sort of subsidy wars that have kicked off you know you had of course the inflation reduction act in the US uh, has been hugely controversial uh, even among some of America's allies uh, you've seen uh, Canada react to that in an extremely aggressive way and throw billions of dollars at companies like Volkswagen uh, to get them to make battery investments I think the UK has both uh, been reluctant as I mentioned to, to be drawn into that but I, I don't think that they can fully uh, exclude themselves uh, there there is some element of, of needing to bring uh, you know investment in by sort of yeah. offering some some major incentives and that's always been how the game has has been played in this industry because of the number of jobs and high value employment uh, that that this industry brings it's it's sort of inherent to the way uh, you know plants uh, plant locations get decided yeah absolutely stuck with that competition got to deal with it and um, what about the problem though um, of this sort of post brexit uh, issue how significant are these tariffs meant to come in on the first of January it, it would be really significant and I think it would be embarrassing honestly both you know for the UK government and and for Brussels I think think you know there, there was good intention here there was uh, you know really an interest in getting the EV supply chain localized uh, in in the UK and in Europe uh, but there have been real challenges with the industry you know making progress on that on that front here in the UK you had uh, British volt a, a startup that uh, you know had big ambitions but wasn't able to execute on them you've had in in Europe uh, in general just you know sort of slow progress in getting the supply chain up and running and so you know again good intentions mm. it made sense to try and you know push the industry in that direction but uh, you know given how far behind the industry is and sort of uh, you know getting that set up and it's you know really sort of across uh, the board even Tesla is is behind in you know localizing battery production in, in its uh, German plant uh, you know if, if nothing is done before the end of the year we're talking about tariffs between uh, the EU and the UK to you know important very important trade partners to one another uh, tariffs being put on each other's EVs that wouldn't apply to say China uh, and of course that would uh, not go over particularly well especially when consumers already sort of balking at buying EVs because they're already too expensive yeah and so unusually you've got this uh, actually the car industry on both sides of the channel in Europe and the UK 
you're really wanting some mitigation measures. So what's the yes. EU proposing on that front? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, three options being proposed here, uh, you know, one being do nothing, which I think is is you know quite unlikely that uh, that 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 will happen because again I think it would be embarrassing uh, to sort of you know for for Europe and and the UK to put themselves in this position. Uh, there's a, a complicated uh, you know sort of um, you know short term measure of of sort of kicking the can down the road by one year uh, that would be you know complicated just from a sort of logistical standpoint. The other uh, option that the industry is is pushing for is a, a much longer delay here. Uh, uh, roughly three years, and you know, of course, it it, it would necessarily, you know, it, it would to some degree not necessarily reflect well uh, on the industry that uh, you know it's taking them this much time. But I also think it's a sort of you know uh, reality that it does take uh, you know an industry this big and this complicated, uh, you know, to uh, make these sorts of you know longer term investments. And you know, if if the industry were to sort of rush into them mm. uh, before you know before the consumer is ready and before uh, you know or, or, or sort of uh, under under duress, you know, you you sort of raise the uh, odds that that we have problems and and you know put EVs out there that aren't aren't ready and with batteries that that are problematic. We've seen a lot of you know sort of teething issues on the part of the industry with uh, battery yeah. fires and yeah. so forth. Thank you so much for being with us. Craig Trudell is Bloomberg's Global Automotive Editor looking at one of the key issues facing the UK's car industry. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, China trying to improve trade relations with another vital partner. Not the US though. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. The European Union has said it does not want to decouple from China, but rather de-risk parts of its relationship. So with a summit coming up between the two blocs, how might China and the EU navigate their dialogue on improving their trade relationship? For more, let's get to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Brian Curtis. Tom, China and the European Union are set to hold a summit on December 7th and 8th. The European Commission and Council Presidents Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel will travel to China. One of the big issues of late, China is concerned about the European Union's launch of an anti-subsidy investigation into the imports of electric vehicles. This summit comes around after a series of high-level dialogues of late, and these happened earlier this year on issues including trade and foreign policy. Joining us now is Jenny Marsh, Bloomberg team leader for Greater China and the economics and government team. Jenny, thanks so much for being with us. So 
This is the first face-to-face or in-person summit uh, with Beijing's leadership for Europe in some four years. A lot is expected. What can we expect? Yeah, I mean, a lot's expected, and at the same time, almost nothing is expected because you know these two blocks they are they're at a really low point in their ties at the moment. It's extremely acrimonious, and you know. They're going to obviously be talking about the differences in trades, and I think you know market access is what this trip is all going to come down to. Um, and uh, you know neither side has really much room to give. I think you know obviously front and center for the Chinese is this uh, probe into its subsidies and support for the EV market. Um, and the Europe has been saying to China that it needs to cooperate with this probe because it's very hard for Europe to come to a fair conclusion if it doesn't have visibility. Over all the different ways, you know, that China does um, support its EV industry, so they're going to be looking for more access there. Um, you know, China's position on this is very clear. They they think that the Europeans are um, being unfair, and they say they have this kind of full supply chain of the things that you need to create EVs in China, and lots of the raw materials for batteries, for example, are made in China and processed in China, which reduces costs. So. They each have their own positions on this, and it's going to be probably at the heart of the discussions. Although there are other issues around the trade relationship and just the bilateral relationship in general, they'll be discussing. It raises the question, I suppose. Uh, it's a really a dilemma whether or not, as a major trading bloc like Europe, whether you can reduce your economic dependence on China without souring relations. It's difficult. I mean, Italy seems to have managed very gracefully to sort of bow out of the um, the BRI while maintaining its relationship with China. But I think what China does really take umbrage at is sort of this kind of um, de-risking uh, framework, which you know, I mean, it was the Europeans, it was von der Leyen who coined that phrase. Uh, while de-risking is more palatable than decoupling to China, it's actually the same thing with a different name. And essentially, that means sort of ring fencing big parts of your economy um, from the Chinese. And often, it's those parts of the economies they really care about. You know, from the U.S. side, it's the high tech chips, um, and and so yeah, it make, it creates these tensions, um, and it, it's hard to separate the trade relationship from the bilateral relationship. And, and actually, I mean, Europe is is telling China um, on Dombrovsky's visit earlier this year, he made it very clear that they don't see. The human rights side, for example, is separate to trade and the economic relationship. So, increasingly, they're both moving away from this idea like you can trade with someone, but you can disagree on, you know, fundamental values. Now that's sort of changing a bit, and both sides actually are, are linking those two different sides of the relationship more. It's been highlighted that what Europe is looking for is a, a level playing field. And and as you mentioned, one of the ways that we can kind of look at that is is the trade surplus that China enjoys with Europe. It's massive. It's, it's more than 400 billion euros. So you're wondering, how do you right size that? In other words, what could China buy from Europe more to help change that um, that relationship? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, there are all these different sort of um, restrictions at the moment on uh, European cosmetics that the Europeans are going to be lobbying to get removed um, and also on um, instant formula. So there's trade barriers there which are holding back European companies. Um, the French particularly are concerned about the cosmetics um, <clears throat> barriers. So that's something that the Europeans could lobby for. Uh, whether or not that will, will be sufficient to sort of uh, to narrow 
that huge trade deficit that you mentioned, you know, I, I'm unsure of, but it's sort of, um, it's going to be a, a bigger problem going forward. This is not going to go away because China's being very clear. You know, you had Pan Gongsheng talking in Hong Kong this week about how China needs to sort of back away from its sort of property-led growth and to sort of put money into these sort of new emerging uh, green markets, which, you know, EVs is one of them. If China ramps up its manufacturing capacity in those areas, what Europe and others are worried about is sort of China's going to flood the market, essentially, because it has built a sufficient amount of the factories it needs to meet domestic demand right now. So where, where does that excess go? And one of the other areas that we haven't talked about is uh, the commodities, the crucial commodities that that Europe buys from China. And there's a, there's a little bit of complication with that because China is now talking about actually limiting the possible sales of certain types of, of rare earth um, minerals, for instance. And so it, it may be difficult for Europe to... Uh, to either raise or reduce its economic dependence on China when it comes to commodities. This is sort of one of the few areas where China actually has some leverage. I think, you know, it's, it's found it difficult to respond uh, to U.S. and European sort of um, trade curves in the past, but it, it's its kind of dominance in the market of rare earths is something that China uh, does have in its toolbox. Although it, it sort of already um, granted licenses for the export of some of these mi- minerals that it did put um, the restrictions on, um, the Commerce Ministry has sort of um, given the green light for China to export. And so it sort of it still remains to be seen how how strictly China is going to enforce those. But it's a reminder to the Europeans that, you know, if they press ahead with this EV probe and they come out with a bunch of sort of... Um, uh, tariffs on Chinese EVs at the end of it, then China does have ways it can respond that could hurt the European market. And why hasn't China actually confirmed this summit yet? This, this is sort of how China does uh, diplomacy. It's sort of baffling to the rest of the world, but they they very rarely confirm uh, these kind of events until the last minute. I guess because it just gives them some some wiggle room if they want to move things they don't have to then backtrack because they never said anything in the first place um it also just adds that kind of uh sort of um instability as opposed to the european side you know we could call this off still we haven't confirmed it in public you know it's it's kind of petty um but that is this is just sort of textbook and how the chinese do it and um there isn't really too much to be read into it So the U.S. in describing its relationship and its aims on the relationship with China says it wants to de-risk but not decouple. Does Europe have a position in particular on how it is either reducing its dependence or even disengaging from China? The Europeans are the architects of of the de-risking idea in terms of the language. Um, And there were some reports earlier this year where they did sort of identify, you know, national security is it's national security through economic security so it's sensitive technologies um so it's very much in line with the u.s position apart from they haven't they haven't adopted um the sort of measures that the americans have about you know areas where american companies can invest or limiting access to sort of the chips um but they also don't have the same level of technology that that the Americans do right now. So they're still really working through how they see uh, the implementation of de-risking. And they're sort of a couple of steps behind the U.S. And and just finally, just a bit of fun. Obviously, European brands are very big in China, very well known, particularly in the luxury end of the market. Are there China brands, Chinese brands that are known well in Europe? Not too many. 
I mean, BYD uh, maybe. BYD, BYD is the one probably, and uh, I think the Europeans would rather it be less well known. All right, Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Jenny Marsh with us, Bloomberg team leader for a greater China, EcoGov. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Brian Curtis. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at a busy week ahead in Washington. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. It's going to be a busy week ahead in Washington as Congress continues its funding battles and some key hearings, including testimony from some of the biggest names in the business world, appear before the Senate. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, this coming Wednesday is going to be a big day for big bank speak on Capitol Hill. The CEOs of all eight GSIBs, global systemically important banks, will be appearing before the Senate Banking Committee for the annual oversight of Wall Street firms hearing. So Jamie Dimon, Brian Moynihan, Jane Frazier, David Solomon, James Gorman, Charlie Scharf, and even Robin Vince of BNY Mellon and Ron O'Hanley of State Street, they'll all be testifying. It's a really important hearing. In fact, it's so important that Shanali Basik, Bloomberg TV's global finance correspondent, is going to be making the trip from New York down here to Washington to cover it. And she's joining us now. So, Shanali, let's just talk about themes first. What do you expect is going to come up in this hearing? Well, there's two things. One, there's the agenda of the lawmakers, and then there's the agenda of the bankers themselves. Now, you have to remember that you have policymakers really trying to firm up rules around uh, bank capital moving forward, and th- those rules are now in their comment period. So what is now happening is you're going to see the big U.S. banks, uh, the CEOs of them, take this opportunity to really make the case on why these rules would be too stringent and start to choke off some of the economic activity because they have to hold more capital um, against the work that they do. Now, from the lawmakers' perspective, they have other questions, and you saw it right when the hearing was announced in the first place. Sherrod Brown, I quote, said that Wall Street's mega banks continue to make record profits and to reward corporations that raise prices on Americans. So inflation will still be a question. And also, like we've seen in uh, the prior year, we will also see them question why most Americans have not seen the effect of higher interest rates through their savings accounts because rates have not risen very meaningfully relative to how quickly rates 
rates have risen, um, by, been, been risen by the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I think the capital requirements part especially could be interesting and possibly contentious because there are plenty of Republicans on the banking committee who have been pretty, pretty vocally opposed to the Basel III endgame and those higher requirements. Basically, all of the Republican senators, in fact, had written a letter to the Fed uh, kind of casting doubt on whether the Fed should really be pursuing this. So I guess the bankers will be more aligned with that party, and it could be a little bit more contentious with the Democrats. Well, it's interesting that you mention that, too, because you have this just a week after. This hearing comes a week after Jamie Dimon was pretty public at the CNBC deliver, uh, sorry, deal book, New York Times deal book conference. I'm very sorry. And he says that even liberals should be supporting Nikki Haley. And you're seeing this big call by Wall Street to support her as a, uh, as a presidential candidate. And it does have a lot to do with her views around the economy and around domestic policy as well as international policy. Yeah, so I'm sure there are going to be plenty of juicy headlines coming out of this hearing. There also is the question, Shanali, and this kind of comes back to the reason why capital requirements might be higher in the first place, is we are now, what, eight, nine months out of uh, the start of the bank failures of 2023 with SVB. Are they going to tell us there's still reasons to worry about the health of the banking system, or is this going to be a message of nothing more to see here, guys, we're fine? Well, let's see how tempered that they might be, because remember that these banks are slated to pay a lot more in terms of a special assessment to the FDIC, which is uh, an agency under a lot of fire for its own practices in many ways. But uh, the banks are feeling the burn of that, and the biggest banks are paying the most uh, into that special assessment. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to your coverage of this this coming week. Shanali Bostic, Bloomberg TV's global finance correspondent. Thank you so much. And Tom, Get ready for Wall Street to head to Washington. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on the markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.